Coming up on today's show, the Premier takes to the airwaves to speak with Albertans yesterday. The big takeaway, some inflation relief. We'll also talk with the president of Athabasca University and some of the issues with the province over the past several months. It looks like maybe there's an end in sight. And Edmonton's continue to roll out the welcome mat for Ukrainians seeking refuge from the war in their country. We'll speak with Mike in Edmonton. So, breaking down the Premier's address to the province last night, like I said, I think the, the main takeaway for most Albertans will be the inflationary relief measures that were brought in, and by and large, I think they're pretty successful. I mean, there's some criticism I've seen out there, but I mean, it's going to help a lot of Albertans. That's that's the bottom line. Um, let's get Trevor Harrison's take. Trevor is a political scientist at the University of Lethbridge. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you being here today. Good morning, Shay. Uh, happy to be here. So overall, what, what's your assessment uh, from what we saw last night from the Premier? Do you think it was effective? Passing grade? What do you think? Well, I, uh, certainly I, I agree with you. The uh, Anytime that you're giving away money to people, people are really happy with that. Mm-hmm. So there's an awful lot of money that is uh, is going out there. Uh, $2.4 billion in all various forms of relief. Uh, there's a few things uh, certainly uh, that uh, that one could uh, quibble with uh, for people who are uh, reasonably low income actually uh, and are single uh, if you don't have kids you're suddenly sort of left yeah. out of it uh, and and the 180,000 and less uh, amount of money that you have to earn before you get some of these things that's a really really high threshold so i suspect some people might say well why is it that people are getting $170,000 a year are suddenly getting this extra money? Well, somebody who's a, a single person earning $35,000 a year isn't. I mean, it's a bit of a glaring it, hole, right? It, it is, and I, I think the reason is is clearly this was a political statement uh, gearing up for the election. Uh, the, the calculation is that these are the people, seniors and uh, families, people with uh, kids, who are most likely to vote uh, and hopefully vote for the UCP. So, uh, And the other groups are sort of being left out of it because they don't quite fit within the voter bank that the UCP has identified. So it's very much a political statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because there's big numbers there, I think that's what people were, will remember. But there were, of course, three other parts to right. really her speech last night, and that was health care, the Sovereignty Act, and... Uh, sort of trying to convince people to forget things that she said even fairly recently that that was me then but i'm a dis- different person suddenly now so yeah so let's go through those when it comes to the health care i think um, we're all pretty clear on what the issues are and i think the three that she talked about are ones that everybody agrees with you know wait times with surgery and er's and and those things but but we need the details i mean okay you're going to fix them we've been hearing that for a while how are you going to fix them i think that we're pretty scant on details on that file yeah, that is a really big file, and it's a big one right across the country. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, money, we can't just throw money at it. But money actually is a pretty big deal of this when you think about you need nurses, you need doctors, you need attendants, you need to train people. So some of these things can't be solved overnight, and they actually do require a fair amount of money. So there's a lot of kind of uh, rhetoric and skirting around the edges that we're going to solve these things it's not going to be solved in the next six months. And uh, so they're trying to tap dance while uh, dealing with an issue that Albertans are really concerned about. Yeah, no question about it. It, I mean, you can can track the polling, and there's been a bunch done. What do Albertans care about? Number one is inflation. That's right across the board. Number two is health care. So those two were one and two in the address. After that, the doors sort of got thrown open to to issues that uh, Albertans 
Albertans aren't really all as interested in in terms of polling and what what they're indicating are sort of top of mind for them. But that's the Sovereignty Act, and 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 that's what brought Danielle Smith to the leadership. And she's um, I'm not going to say pivoting, but she's certainly trying to soften it in some ways, right? Yeah, and it was actually for me. It was a uh, it was very curious when uh, finally we get uh, told what the renaming of the act is. The Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act, which is quite a mouthful, but the other thing I was suddenly remembered when I heard that, uh, there was a joke by the uh, Quebecois comedian, Yvonne Deschamps, in the uh, 1990s, where the joke was, he said, what is it Quebec wants? The province wants to be independent within a strong in United Canada. Um, so it's almost the exact wording of what was a joke. <laughs> And uh, Deschamps, the reason it was a joke that people laughed at was they realized this was an incompatible kind of thing. You're trying to square the circle here. It's almost like Smith and the people in her office didn't get the joke and are actually trying to suggest that they can square the circle. The reason for this is obvious. Uh, the vast majority of Albertans do not want to separate. They're actually rather fearful of this language. They are very proud Canadians, uh, wherever they've come from, even people born here. And so they're trying to square the circle around promises to make Alberta effectively independent, uh, while at the same time assaging the fears of these people. So it's they didn't get the joke, and they've come up with a name for it that really is quite contradictory in its own terms. Yeah, I think you're right. It's trying to thread that needle with something that you campaigned on and you feel is important with the realization that most Albertans really don't like it, and, it, and it's going to be a tough, tough job. Uh, the last very, one... Very tough. Well, and, and again, it's it's really appealing to a very minority it group with, of supporters that she has there. Yeah, exactly. I think the recognition yeah. is there within the party. The last one, and I think it's going to be the one where she's pressed hardest when she gets herself in front of a microphone next. Um, I've evolved, and some of the yeah. viewpoints that I took previously, I realized uh, they've evolved, they've changed. She's going to have to answer which ones. Well, which ones were you wrong on, and how do you feel about them now? Uh, that's going to be the next uh, step that we have to take here, right? Yeah, and, and you know, uh, people can change, uh, but, you know, she's in her early 50s. She is, She's not only brought up many of these topics as a point of entertainment or, or things to talk about. She has argued, lobbied hard for many of the things she said. She firmly believes that many of the things she said in the past, and these aren't like 10 years ago. In, in many cases, these are things she's written about, talked about only in the last year, to suddenly say I've pivoted away, I'm a different person now. Uh, once she gets in front of a microphone and it's not the controlled, uh, uh, you know, television studio, it'll be interesting to see how she actually handles that. Because, but as you know, the the art of politics is to some extent to get people to forget yeah. things you want them to forget and to remember things you want them to remember. So uh, she's she's a skilled uh, person in the media industry. Can she do that? Well, there's an awful lot of baggage there that would have to be left behind. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see how that goes. That's going to be one of the biggest challenges throughout the campaign. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us and providing some insight. Yesterday, the Provincial Minister of Advanced Education was on the show. Dimitrios Nicolaitis joined us to go over the new employment quotas that the school, University of Athabasca, or Athabasca University, I guess, um, must meet in order to make sure that their provincial funding isn't affected. And again, 
at last report, last I've seen, about a quarter of the staff that work for Athabasca University live in Athabasca. Province wanted to see that level increase to 65%. But under the latest proposal, the province has changed it. Uh, The minister told us yesterday they've suggested like 10% increases year over year for three years. So they've softened their stance a bit. So so where does that leave us? We're going to chat now with Peter Scott, who is the president of Athabasca University, and get the school's take on all of this. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Hey, Shay, good to be here. How are you this morning? I'm, I'm good, really good. Yeah, how about you? I'm great. Looking Excellent. forward to get this, getting this thing done. We've been We've been in this conversation for a long time. Uh, you'll have heard Demetrius talking about that yesterday. Yeah. Uh, we're all really keen to move past this and get on with our learners, get on with our research, get on with the business of being a university. I, 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 I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. We have been talking about this for a long time. And in those discussions, it seems like there was a fundamental disconnect or a disagreement, I guess, in terms of what the focus of Athabasca University was. And I know you were saying, listen, to provide the best education, this is the way we need to do it. And the province is saying, yeah, but it's also a job creator. Do you think there's been some understanding in terms of how both those masters can be served? Are you comfortable with that? Because I know you were saying at times you couldn't offer the best education possible with the conditions that were being imposed. Yeah, no, I, I think the fundamentals are really important. And I think at the beginning of the conversation, we were miles apart from the fundamentals. I, I don't think government really well understood who we were. Um, and that took a bit of explaining. Um, we, we agreed this funding agreement. Well, the minister gave you a little tutorial yesterday on what the IMA was. It's a funding agreement from the province. Mm-hmm. The province gives us about 30% of our budget. We get the rest of our budget from our students. They pay fees. Year on year, the, the, the province has cut the budget for all post-secondary. Year on year, three times now, we've had to raise our fees. Uh, and we really, if we're going to do that again, <laughs> we're going to take any money from our students. We want it to be for their interests. We want it to be for their benefit. We want it to be about education. And so we had a, a little bit of a you know, fundamental agreement about what it is that universities even do. Yeah. Um, and absolutely it's the case. If you are a, if you're a, a Edmonton-based post-secondary like McEwen or Norquest, you really got to care about, you know, the community that your students live in because it's Edmonton. You've got to really care about the benefit of that community because then your staff are in Edmonton. Everybody's in Edmonton. So it's really important for you. Our, our in-principle disagreement way back when, back in March when we had an agreement, uh, was that, um, you know, we're an online university, right? All of our students, all of our staff live, work, and uh, do everything they do remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we teach all across the country. We teach in 81 countries, one of which is Canada. 40,000 um, students, all, right? I mean, it's, it's huge. Yeah, we have 40,000. Almost all of those are in Canada. We're, we're not hugely big international, but we do have international students. Um, and they all work where they work. <laughs> they all work in those countries. Um, we reach out into every area of this great country. So if you uh, if you look into the smallest remotest settlement anywhere in Canada, you you'll swing a cat and hit an Athabasca University student. Um, so you know uh, around about half of our students are even studying programs. They're just doing a little thing to fast track their careers and lives. Um, and that means wherever they are, remote and rural, in an indigenous community, in a place where they really couldn't get into a classroom, their classroom's virtual, mm-hmm. and their teachers their teachers do the same. So we have 1,200 staff, um, uh, a few hundred of those are in, in the town, which um, the university was moved to in 1984, um, when a lot of that 
business of opening envelopes and shipping boxes made sense. Um, we've supported that community. We still support that community. There's about 300 people still there of our 1,200 staff. And what we were saying to government was, well, you want us to do something. Could you tell us the fundamentals of how that's going to help our students? How that's going to help our learners? How it's going to help us be a better world university? Um, Alberta has Canada's national university sitting in its backyard. Um, we, you know, if Canada doesn't have a national university, right? Right. But, but, but we're it. <laughs> if, if it did have a national university, reaching out from our base in Alberta, we connect all of Canada together. That, that's a, I think it's a really cool story. I mean, about a quarter of our students are actually studying at another university somewhere in Canada, and we fast-track them. We get them doing better. We get them reaching into Alberta, hearing what we do, learning from us, doing better. About a quarter of our students are trust, trying to change their lives. They need a little bit from us. And about a half of them are following a program. Um, so, what, what, you know, when Premier Smith talks about needing more nurses, we have the biggest nursing program. It's connecting to our nurses, particularly connecting to people who are kind of in practice and just need to do better, kind of wanting to get the first step on the ladder. Digital is a really cool way to do that all across the board. And we're not limited by classrooms. We're not limited by timetables. We're only limited by the digital world that we're all living in. So we're really, we're, we're an answer to that question. Yeah. Um, so huge programs, huge success. We just asked the government fundamentally, how will what you're proposing help us? And we've been having that conversation for a while since. And I'm wondering how far the movement has gone, because you're right. I, at the beginning, I think the answer would have been, well, that's not the issue here. The issue is that this was also an employment creator. That's what this was. So where are you now? Are, are you comfortable? Have you moved to you, you think the understanding has been made? Oh, I think I think we've got a much clearer stand, understanding of where we are. I mean, I think that the, the minister didn't like what the board was saying um, back in the start of the year. So he gave us a new board chair. He didn't like what the board was saying, even with the new board chair, so he gave us three new local members. And then he didn't like what the board was saying and has given us a lot of new public members. So I think the board is the board is a new board. Um, they will still be, I, I know, they, these are volunteers who are giving of their own time to work in the best interest of the university. And I'm pretty confident that we, we've absolutely moved on in that conversation and the, the the discussion we're going to be having with them real soon. Um, so the new proposal, the one that he's talking about now, where a 10% increase year over year for the next three years, is that more reasonable to you? Is that attainable? Can you do that and still do all the wonderful things you're talking about in terms of providing the best quality education you can? Yeah, no, the critical piece for us is that we actually already do preferential hiring for the town of Athabasca. Again, I, I don't think the minister kind of got that um, and still hasn't quite got that actually already it's the case that we'll try to find someone uh, to support our core base in, that, in Athabasca Town. It's really, really important to us. But it's also important that we hire the best possible people. And we do hire all across Canada, and there's no intent to change that. I think the minister's been very clear. He said it again to your listeners yesterday. He's very happy to negotiate. He's very happy to be flexible. Right. He in no way wants to damage what is a fantastic export from Alberta. Um, and by the way, the majority, yeah, the, the biggest number of our students, not the majority, the biggest number of our students are in Alberta. We have something like, we get the smallest amount of funding from uh, the government of Alberta of any post-secondary, even the independent colleges that 
that don't have to answer to the government of Alberta. We get the smallest amount of funding, and yet we still reach a huge number of Albertans. We have something like, you know, just look at it today, count it today, the number varies a lot because of the flexibility of our study. We're incredibly flexible. But if you look at it today, we'd have something like 16,000 Albertans studying with our university. None of those are in the town of Athabasca. None of them will go to a classroom in the town of Athabasca. But Athabasca is a heart that we have supported since 1984. We moved there. We have no plans to um, pull out of the town of Athabasca. And I understand their worries about that. The pandemic made it look very worrying. There were not a lot of people going into the campus because it was a pandemic and things were locked down. Right. Guess what? That was, you, may, you may not have noticed if you were in Athabasca, that happened in Edmonton too. Uh, that happened all around the world. So it's, it is worry, but it's, it's a good facility in the town. There ain't any classrooms. There ain't any students. There ain't any facilities that you'd normally expect on campus. So it's not a campus, it's an office blocks. Um, and what we've agreed with our staff is a new use of that facility to empower the great work that they do. Because fundamentally for us, it's all about the benefit to our students. So I think the minister now understands that. I think the minister now understands that, that a positive investment should be made in that community and that it, it isn't just making the university do that investment. I actually think we're, we've got a very strong story for the government of Alberta now about investing in the town for a super new research base we have right. planned. I want to ask you... Trying to make sense out of that, 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 the people that are there, make them actually create value. I don't, I don't want people sitting in cubicles. I want them generating real value, real jobs. We're talking with Peter Scott, president of Athabasca University, as they work through their... I don't know what you would call it with the province, coming to an understanding of exactly how um, they can not only offer the best education possible, but also meet the employment goals that that university was created to help generate. And I think we've sort of come to an understanding that that is possible. And one thing that's being proposed by Mr. Scott is a, a new research center at Athabasca University that will help with this. And it sounds pretty interesting. Um, Peter, basically what you're talking about is creating um, a, a facility or a component of Athabasca Athabasca University that's a research center researching northern Alberta issues, correct? Absolutely right. It's a really exciting vision for how you could serve the, not just the north of this province, but the north of all of Canada. Uh, research is one of those things that people don't think very much about, but actually it's at the heart of what it means to be a comprehensive research university. There are four of those in Alberta. Um, we are one of a set with uh, Lethbridge, Calgary, and the University of Alberta itself. Um, and at our heart is, well, we, our, our students uh, ask difficult questions, take the evidence and understand what that evidence is to answer those difficult questions, and then we help them get a good degree. Underlying that theme of asking those difficult questions is research, and we have some fabulous research specialties that we believe not only could thrive in the base in Athabasca, but would bring, bring real value to that community in a way that, you know, if we were originally talking way back when, uh, at the start of this year with the government about, you know, just force your staff to go into cubicles in the office, I'd say, well, those are jobs from 1984. Mm -hmm. what, we need, what we need our team to be doing is jobs in 2030. Look forward, Alberta, look to the future, and let's see research at the heart of that. Now, the, the Premier absolutely understands that, but innovation and skills at the heart of her agenda, trying to see how we expand fantastic areas like 
hydrogen and uh, innovation in this province. Athabasca could certainly play a role in that with a little bit of investment from government. And again, I, I don't buy the story that the government of Alberta hasn't got any money to invest in uh, northern, Alberta, uh, northern Alberta and the town of Athabasca and that it needs students to fund that. I, I don't buy that story. I think there's a really good investment that will pay off in a huge way because there's some fantastic specialties that we, can that we already have in that area and we can, we can create real jobs that actually matter. Um, huge topics like the Athabasca River Basin is something we are specialist researchers on. The future of water is really important to this planet. Specialties in health, again, we are really cool at that. Yeah. Reaching out to remote and rural, 30% of our um, undergraduate um, nurses are practicing in rural and remote contexts. That's We don't have to have them come out of their rural and remote and come to a classroom in a town somewhere. They can learn where they work, upgrade where they work. And that's a huge, you know, 2,000 nurses on, on our undergraduate bachelor program, 2,000 nurses on our master's program and in a context where they can study. We need a base to coordinate that and to drive it. And a key part of that is research, asking those difficult questions with great answers. Space I, science, we're great at it. There's a whole bunch of innovation areas where a base makes sense. A sure. base, it's not a campus. It's a research hub. It's a research base. Uh, we, we think we can make that work. I think the ministry and the minister are very excited by that. It's a, an exciting vision for the North, and it comes with real, real sustainable jobs that actually create fantastic value. Yeah, and I asked the minister about it yesterday, and you're right. He did say he's very interested in, in hearing more about it and exploring that opportunity after... The funding agreement is signed, and he wants to see that done by the end of this week uh, in terms of, okay, we're going to go with the 10% increases year over year over the next three years. So are you, is that what the next step is for you? Is that is that going to happen? He says he's more than willing to even attend your meeting next week. Uh, that, that's really good. I'm really, I'm really keen to have the minister attend the meeting again. Uh, I can't speak to the detail of the IMA and you know the fine details of this and that. I, I know the minister disclosed some of that. I'm not prepared to do that because I'm only one member of a board, and we've not, as a board, got a chance to discuss it yet. But yeah, I know I'd really love to hear the minister um, put the money where the mouth is of uh, being flexible and wanting to negotiate and giving us that ability to to deliver and close this thing off. I'm delighted that he's so excited by that research opportunity because, for me, that's the way to deliver some of those metrics in a way that doesn't derail right. um, Alberta's fabulous jewel in the crown of Canada, which is Athabasca University, digital, online, anytime, anywhere you want us, we're here for you. That's a, that's, that's a story I don't want to hurt. I know the minister doesn't want to do that either. And I know this exciting vision is the one that we can get all behind and very happy to get in, get the negotiating done, and get this settled. Well, Peter, I really appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Thanks so much for being here. Let's get an update on what's going on with Ukrainian refugees and how they're making out in Canada and getting to Canada. The latest stats, this was a story that came out just yesterday showing that we're not doing... A great job when it comes to getting them here. Um, about a third, less than a third, actually, of the Ukrainians that Canada has actually approved for temporary visas to come in this country have actually made it here. Hundreds of thousands are still waiting in line to find out if they even qualify 
to travel here. So the numbers break down like this. Um, about 700,000 requests from Ukrainians to travel to Canada have been um, received by the government. 420,000 of them have been approved so far, yet only 117,000 have actually made it to Canada so far. So um, we're at about 700,000 people requesting visas to come to Canada, but 120,000 have made it here thus far, and hundreds of thousands more uh, waiting in line to even get started with the process. Now, a lot of them who arrive here, of course, um, are relying on Canadians and Albertans to welcome them, to house them, to do all kinds of support when they get here. And we've spoken with Mike from Edmonton before. He's been leading the charge on this right since the very beginning. And the work continues. And Mike joins us now. Mike, thanks for your time. I appreciate you being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, just tell us, uh, I, I, you, you sent me some videos and some pictures of some of the things you've been doing with the many, many Ukrainian refugees that are in our part of the world. Just tell us what you started doing. Yeah, well, one of the main things we want to do is keep them from being isolated and get them, you know, socially acclimatized and introduce them to even other Ukrainians after they arrive, because it's different in their culture. They don't have as much of our open Canadian, you know, high on the street kind of thing. Um, but they love it. It's one of the best parts of coming here. So I started throwing uh, essentially Ukrainian house parties every uh, every weekend and inviting a couple of dozen bunch of families, you know, 10 kids and all of these people coming and they all meet from all over Ukraine, different regions, and experience a giant Canadian backyard fire and uh, all of this kind of stuff. And um, a couple other Canadians show up and they get English conversation and they solve problems and ask questions. And it's been just absolutely wonderful. What have you learned? I mean, in terms of having these, like you say, I mean, you don't want people getting isolated. You want to build some sort of community, some sort of support system, I guess. Is all that happening sort of just through these parties? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a lot of it online through Facebook, and they connect through these different groups, and we just make invitations. So, you know, I see somebody who's posting that they're lonely or that they have some questions or something, and I just send them an invitation with the address and time. Um, and then when they get here and they start talking, we found that they're making um, app chat groups with each other, you know, like groups of moms and husbands are meeting each other and becoming friends and sharing information about work and, and things they need to do, learning about childcare, questions that get answered quickly from each other instead of, you know, they can, we can actually help their hosts because it's a long time to solve a problem for some of us. And some of them have been here for three, four months and they've already solved it. And they're meeting Ukrainians who've just arrived and nervous and afraid and don't know what to do and here they have a nice environment to do it and I've seen it happening in some of our other areas as well. I posted videos and pics. I've seen they're doing it in our groups down in Calgary. Some huge events in some parks and, and, and stuff too and it's uh, it's been a great feature. How many people are we talking about here? I know there's a lot but when you talk about how many people in Edmonton or in Calgary or in Alberta, is there any way of knowing exactly how many are here right now? Yeah, yeah. Well, we can tell you that our numbers increase in Edmonton alone by 100 to 120 Ukrainians every week. Um, there's thousands already here in Edmonton. Alberta-wide, somewhere between 12 and 18,000. Not all of them get counted. Um, some of them show up. And the thing about these little social events and things that are happening, not little, I guess 25 Ukrainians. Yeah. Um, my little house. But um, 
It catches people that aren't in our hosting networks. They show up, they rent an Airbnb, they wait for the government assistance, they try to learn English, and they're alone. And they get some help from settlement agencies, but not all the steps, not all the tips and tricks. We, we save them a ton of money by using our local knowledge of how to get around, and they share resources for their children, um, where to live, where to rent, special landlords who offer extra benefits for Ukrainians who are coming in, things like that. It solves so many problems so fast, and they just feel welcomed right away and it's it's part of the canadian experience that you know they heard about and were kind of mystified by when they when they find it what i mean can can you sort of track progress i mean like you say some have been here for months some are just arriving can you sort of see what stage they're at i mean are are, are we seeing them start work start school start oh yeah within can you follow that so much faster than than we've seen before, like with other groups in the past. We've seen all kinds of great things happening. You know, Ukrainian people are showing up with almost no English even and still finding employment. You know, 50 to 75 percent of them are finding employment within two to six weeks. Wow. You know, like in the English classes are, are getting filled up, but then there's volunteer English classes springing up. We have 20 or 30 families living near each other in the Southgate area of Edmonton, and they have a, a room going with some classes uh, going every night, with English classes with some volunteer instructors. It's a village of Southgate. Just wonderful people. So they're they're doing well they're climatizing they're they're working really hard i mean some of these people are working all day doing english online doing homework taking care of kids figuring out the system and they're doing it so fast that where we started hosting them for three months at a time the first rounds a lot of people are in their own places in a month to a month and a half now and we desperately need hosts for december because it's a tough month and there's a lot of people coming but it's gotten so much smoother they're doing so well once they get their feet under them but if we don't help them get their feet under them right then it's a struggle okay so let's let's figure out how we're going to do that how many are you expecting over the course of december do you know i mean do you get a rough estimate or yeah, we, well we have we have uh, pre-planned lists so we know for okay. example that there are dozens already planning on arriving in december and then there's dozens more who aren't um we don't know yet they just show up and then start asking for help so we need hosts to take them in for one to three to five weeks even and um, in December, it's rough because travel and families and sure. stuff. So we're, it's tough for us and we need help. So what's the ask of a host family? Like you say, I mean, what, what sort of, Hey, if you can do this, we can, we can use your help. What, what's the minimum oh. ask here? Clean, safe, comfortable place to sleep and um, support with uh, a little bit of food, uh, utilities, making sure there's some Wi-Fi and they don't have to worry about, you know, being able to be cold and hungry. And um, if they can, we have volunteers that help with a lot of the documents. We have settlement agencies working better now, but any help they can getting to appointments is nice. You know, the first couple weeks is pretty hectic. Um, but at least 60-70% of the strain has been taken off the host families. We really just want to get them to the donation centers, help them get around, reassure them, and house them and feed them, and a lot of the rest we can take care of. Um, how's the government doing? I mean, you heard the numbers just before I brought you on here, where we've got 117,000 of about yeah. 700,000 have actually made it here. Is that getting better? 
No, no. I mean, it's every time a baby steps forward, two steps back, right? I mean, Jeez. they got, it's been a pain in the butt. And, and, and every time we turn around, it's, it's private Canadian donations running the show. It's us doing it. It's, it's all this. they they grow the support in such tiny steps. They, they could fix it in a heartbeat. They have free flights that you can sign up for on a lottery system that, you know, who knows if you're going to get it. Um, and it's by Canadians donating their aeroplan points and the government matches it. And there's some funding through a couple of agencies and things, but they could solve the problem in a heartbeat and triple the incoming people. They could be supplying hosts with a little bit of, of a direct support, which they do in other countries, and then more people could repeat host, mm-hmm. you know, one after the other. Yeah, We've got yeah. some people who've done five families. Wow. All on their own dime. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And they and and it's 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 amazing. And it's, uh, half the people coming in don't need a host family about um, because they've they've got a, a couple of thousand dollars to start. The government gives them that little check when they get here after they get their SIN number and bank account. But honestly, um, the other half. I mean, some of them are emergency situations. Some of them were urgent and and uh, and and we we've been good about finding hosts. I mean, Edmonton, St. Albert, Sherwood Park. There's a lot going on. It's incredible. But, but we need more. And you need more. December's the worst month. And uh, and I know that you've had some that reach out through the show, so let's make sure people can yeah. get in touch with you. Yeah, they can reach out to me through mikeinedmonton at gmail.com. Really easy to remember, mikeinedmonton at gmail.com. And then I can filter through if they're wanting to host or volunteer to drive people around even or, you know, that kind of stuff. We've got people who drive kids to school every day. Wow. You know, it's wonderful. And then we can get them out and get them started where they need to, uh, to go. And... Uh, and figure out the best fits. And Mike, if somebody's listening in Calgary or in Lethbridge, they can still contact you. You know the people to get in touch with, right? You can get send them in the right direction? Yes, we can. Um, major centers, Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer are um, by far the most popular. It's where everybody's coming. Yep. But we have had some wonderful support from your show, people who have called in. And, and when they find out they can't host because they're too remote, they help in other ways. And they're just so genuinely helpful. So anybody listening can email me. There's a million ways to help. Uh, Mike in Edmonton at gmail.com. And we really need to start doubling this up. We could be bringing in more. I mean, right. it's not just helping Ukraine, right? It's all of Europe. It's all of these people. They're... And we know, like I've been to Ukraine a bunch. We, we see these places, no heat, no power, no water. It, it's it's brutal right now. And the more people we take in, uh, the easier it is to be safe and rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's very few more worthy causes than this one. Mike, thanks so much for your work and thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.